We are in uh, Matthew chapter 19 today, and I'm going to read verses 16 through 26. And some came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished. And they said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So Jesus meets this man And he asked him a question. Have you ever thought what it would be like to have been back in that time and you encounter Jesus and you get the chance to ask him a question? Just one question. Now, what would it be? What what runs through your mind? If you had been there during that time and you had the opportunity to meet this man, this God-man, you have heard about him, you've... You've heard people talk about him, and now you actually have the opportunity to meet him and talk to him. What question would you ask? I don't know. I mean, you know, we, we always talk about the questions that we're going to ask when we get to heaven, these things that we want to know. But I'm talking about in your life, if you were there with him at that particular time, what would you ask him? The question that this guy asked seems to be a very pertinent question. Matter of fact, it seems to be a question that's worth asking. And it's not only asked here, but it's asked two or three other times in Scripture. So there's no telling. This question may have been asked a dozen times. Some questions that Jesus was asked, he was asked as the intent of getting a real answer. I think this was one of those times. I think this guy sincerely asked the question. Other times, when questions are asked of Jesus, the, uh, the writer records it as being a trap, that the question that was being asked was setting Jesus up to fall into a trap, which every time, of course, he reversed, and the individual that asked the question ended up getting trapped. But some questions were true. They were honest. They were legitimate questions. I think this is one of those. But Jesus is going to inform this young ruler that successful living in the kingdom is based on trust in God and not based on who he is, this individual is, or what he has, or what he can do. Just as Blake was talking about earlier, it's based on God. It's based on Jesus. It's not on you and me. 
Now, this account is actually recorded in three different Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, each have an account of this particular incident. And I've, gave you, I've given you the verses there so you can look those up if you want to. And you really need all three to figure out why it is we call this guy the rich young ruler. Because in Matthew's account, you find out that he's a man. And at the end of his account, you find out that he's young. And you find out that he has great wealth. If you look at Mark's account, you find that he's a man and that he had great wealth. If you look in Luke's account, though, you find out that he was a certain ruler. We don't necessarily know ruler of what. Many think that perhaps he was uh, in some way, shape, form a, a leader in the town or perhaps in the synagogue. Because he's young, probably not synagogue, but maybe some type of ruler around town. But Luke 18, 18 states that, and he also says there that he was a man of great wealth. So we know from all three accounts, he was young, he was rich, and he was a ruler. Hence the fact that we call him the rich young ruler in all three accounts. We refer to him that way. Um, if you look at each of these accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the very thing that precedes each of these encounters with the rich young ruler is an encounter with children. In every case. It's interesting, I think, that each of these writers felt that it was necessary, or the Holy Spirit directed each of these writers to make it necessary that they write about this incident with children before they write the incident of the rich young ruler. So what happens with the children? Well, people are bringing the children to Jesus so that he will bless them. So that he will pray. There again, you need all three accounts to get this. But he was, he was they, people wanted him to place the, his hands on these children and to bless them and to pray for them. And of course, the disciples get all bent out of shape and they're trying to, to prevent folks from bringing their kids to Jesus. And Jesus says, what? Don't stop this. Don't prevent this. Don't prevent any children from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven is based on such as these. If you don't come to the kingdom of God as a child, then you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. So what's he saying here? Well, he's saying those who are innocent, those who are young, those who are dependent, they are welcome in the kingdom of God. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, that means that if we are going to be self-reliant, we're probably not welcome. It's only when we realize that there is sin in our life and we can't do anything about it, and only God can help us through this situation, that we can come to Him. And isn't it interesting then that the Holy Spirit plaques right next to that the story of an individual who thinks he's got it all together. The, the story of an individual who says, just tell me the one more thing that I can do and I will be right in the sight of God. One more thing. Just go ahead and tell me one more thing. I'll knock it out. I've taken care of all these other things. You just tell me that one more thing and I'll do it. I find it interesting that the Holy Spirit put these two stories together in all three accounts. Jesus saying, it's those who need me those who want me, those who are willing to follow me, those who realize that they have need of me and not I of them, the children, versus the ones who have got it all together 
They're just looking for something to check off. You just tell me and I'll check off the list. I'll be there for you. God will be so happy to have me in his kingdom because I'm doing what he wants me to do. Interesting that they're stacked two together. Think, though, that this individual regarded Jesus as a good man. And I think he came respectfully to him, wanting a sincere question, the answer to a sincere question. In two of the accounts, Mark and Luke, the individual addresses Jesus as good teacher. Now, there could be some versions of Matthew out there, depending on your translation, that says good teacher, but most don't because it's not there in the original. They just say teacher. Teacher is a term of respect. Good teacher is a term of respect. And in all three cases, he's asked, what good thing can I do? So I think he's respectful. Uh, Mark's account even says that he fell on his knees before Jesus and says, good teacher, tell me what good thing can I do? So I think he comes in honesty. I think he is sincere. But I also think he missed something here. What good thing can I do to get eternal life, is Matthew's way of saying it. Uh, And Mark says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life is Luke's account. And I mentioned earlier, there's another, there are some other times that this question is asked. Specifically in Luke, in chapter 10, verses 25 through 27, or 37, rather. Uh, on that particular case, there's an expert in the law that stood up to test Jesus. So the Spirit also points out, entering into this, this question is a trap. But it's the same question. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So... There's a question there, there's a question here, same question, but the motives, I think, are different. Otherwise, I think, the Spirit would have told us that this one was a trap as well, but it's not. So he has a sincere inquiry about eternal life. What can I do to gain eternal life? Now, just a little pause on this word eternal. You know, think for yourself, what is eternal? Well, uh, Webster defines it as without beginning or end, existing through all time, everlasting, Forever the same, always true and valid, unchanging, always going on, never stopping, continual. In the Bible, Jesus uses it to describe punishment. It's eternal. According to Matthew 18.8 and Matthew 25.41. Jesus also uses this word eternal, same word, when talking about spiritual reward. Matthew 19.29 and Matthew 25.46. Paul uses this same term, eternal, with respect to God. God is eternal in Romans 16, 26. So a lot of times people want to define heaven as eternal, but they want to talk about hell as being a limited time proposition. But it's not. Hell is eternal. God is eternal. Life is eternal. The question is, are you going to choose life or are you going to choose hell? And it's our choice. As was pointed out uh, on the Lord's Supper this morning, you know, Jesus has paid the price. He has wiped out the sin for those who want to take advantage of it. The war is over. He won the war. Now pick your side. You know, most of the time going into a battle, 
or a football game or a basketball game or anything else. You know, you pick a side and then you duke it out and you see who wins. This one is totally different. God has already won the war. The war is over. Jesus wins, Satan loses. Now pick your side. That's like a no-brainer, isn't it? And yet, we tend to pick poorly. So, just so you know, that word applies in all situations. Now, it's interesting that Jesus focuses not on his question, but upon the term good. And all the commentators that talk about this particular um, section on the, the rich young ruler, that's where they focus too. Good. Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is only one that is good. That's the Father. Or why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one that defines what is good. So he's saying really that this young man, if he is a believing Jew, if he is a smart Jew, if he is a believing and active Jew, he knows what is good. Because he's been taught about God all of his life. He's been raised up in the synagogue. He's been going to the temple regularly, probably three times a year. So he knows what's good. So why are you asking me what's good? And if you think, and the other, the other way of looking at it too is this, this title, good teacher. That very well could be just a platitude, just a way of, of uh, uh, I don't know, placating Jesus or um, patting him on the back or, or making him appear better than he is. If you're calling me good, you're saying that I'm on God's level. This is not just a title you throw around. This is not just some word that you use and it doesn't really matter. You're, you're, you're saying more than you think when you call me good teacher. You know, Jesus would say later, don't call anybody rabbi, right? Because there's only one and that's him. Don't call anybody your teacher because there's only one and that's him. And yet, here, he's focusing in on this term, good. Now, is he saying that he's not deity? No, I don't think so. He's not saying anything negative about who he is, but the response that he got from this young man came across the wrong way. If he's trying to show him respect, and he's an earthly teacher, then he missed it. But if, if this young man is actually saying he is God, well, he's right on. But apparently that's not the case, or Jesus would not have honed in on this one word. Only God is good. Only God defines good. And Jesus wants this man to turn his attention from himself to God. No longer what you can do, but rather what God has done and is doing and will continue to do. That's where you need to focus. God will define what is good. And as I said, be, being a practicing Jew... He should know that already. Um, another commentator says, well, there's, there's one, one thing here. Either Jesus is good or he's not God. That's an interesting way to look at it too, isn't it? If Jesus is good, as this man has put the word out there as good, then he is God. So the question is, is he good or is he not God? So there's a lot wrapped up just in this one little statement of greeting. Good teacher, tell me what good thing I can do to inherit eternal life. 
Jesus wants him to show authority, or rather to show uh, submission to authority. And Jesus wants us to know what is good. And if, if he really wanted, and if we really want to know what to do, we need to go back to the Sermon on the Mount and read that. Because in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, he's kind of laid that out. It's a lot more than what was in the law. It's a lot more detailed than what was in the law. Because now he's aiming at our hearts. Now he's aiming at our minds. Now he's aiming at the inner man. Because that is Jesus' concern. That was always God's concern. Matter of fact, my personal opinion is the Sermon on the Mount is, is Jesus explaining what God meant when he gave them the law. Because he will say over and over again, you have heard it said. And then he'll quote part of the law. But what I say to you is, here's what we really meant. And he will go a little bit further. He says, you, shall, you, have, you, have, heard it, you have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, what? You shall not hate your brother. <laughs> you don't even call him derogatory names. You don't even look down on him. That's what he really meant. So it's a lot deeper. We're aiming. But then Jesus would go ahead and answer his question. He says, but if you want life, what? Obey the commandments. Pretty simple. And you as a young Jew, you ought to know that. Keeping the commandments is getting or gaining eternal life. God's always said that. If you'll obey me, I will bless you. That's always been the way it is. Obey the commandments. Well, this guy's not going to be dissuaded. What does he say? Which one? Which one? Narrow it down for me. Which ones are the key? Which ones do I really need to obey? And, and maybe there's some I can skip. Right? Which ones? Because, you know, most people have heard before, there's like 613 commands in the old law. Now, in amongst that are the Ten Commandments. You know, a lot of times we just think of the Ten Commandments. But 613, I, I have not counted them. The experts say that. I just kind of quote that, 613. You can go back and count. Maybe you can find more, maybe you find less. I don't know. But out of this 613, Jesus, what's important? What do I need to concentrate on? And Jesus would tell him, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. He quotes Deuter or Exodus 20, uh, verses 12 through 16, or Deuteronomy 5, 16 through 20. So five of the Ten Commandments he lays out right there. He does not address the first five that deal with God. And the relationship with God. But rather he deals with the second five that deal with our relationship one to another. And then he throws in um, Leviticus 19.18 where it says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Interesting um, composition there. If you remember the, the reference that I made earlier to Luke chapter 10 uh, when an individual was trying to trap Jesus. Jesus says, well what does the law say? And that individual said, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So that individual quoted Deuteronomy 6, 5, and also the same verse here, 
Leviticus 19.18, and Jesus says, you are correct, do this and you will live. So, he's kind of done the same thing, only he went to the Ten Commandments and then threw in Leviticus 19.18. Mark and Luke do not record that. Mark and Luke only deal with the, the five of the Ten Commandments that Jesus had spoken. That's an interesting thing too. But each of these deals with how we talk with one another, how we deal human to human. Um, it is more than just law keeping. And Jesus is trying to stress that to this individual. It is more than just law keeping. If you lined up those Ten Commandments, or if you lined up all 613 of these commandments, and you start checking them off, and you think, well, I got it. God loves me. God's going to give me heaven. No. Ah, it doesn't work that way. God's not interested in you checking off a list. God is interested in your heart. What are you doing and why are you doing it? That's what's important. Checking off the list is not good enough. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus, or this individual knows this. Because what does he say? I've done all this since I was a youth. I've kept all these commandments since I was young. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, but what do I lack? He knew there was something missing. It's not about law keeping. It's not about checking off the list. There's something missing. This individual knew it. And you know what? We know it. Whether we want to admit it or not, we know it. We cannot keep a, a bunch of laws, whether it's Old Testament laws or New Testament laws, we cannot keep them and, and think God is going to pat us on the back and say, well done, David, come on in here. Because he's not interested in how well I can check off the list. What's he interested in? What he's interested in is what's right in here. Yeah. Why am I doing what I'm doing? What's motivating me to do what I do and say what I say? He wants my heart. He wants my mind. He wants my entire self. What else do I lack? Mark throws... Well, actually, before I do that, Paul. Paul did the same thing. If you remember, back in Philippians chapter 3, Paul kind of defends himself. And he says in Philippians 3 verse 4, If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I can do it. That's what that is. If anybody else thinks he has the right to put confidence in the flesh, I do more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church... I kill Christians. I got zeal. Yeah. And as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. <laughs> you think Paul was pretty good? Pretty good at being a Jew? Yes, sir, buddy. Faultless. He checked all 613 of them, if that's possible. Paul did it. He said so. The Spirit guided him writing that. And what does he say? I regarded all this as rubbish. 
except for the knowing of Jesus Christ. Paul knew obedience is not enough. Paul knew having a checklist is not enough. All the things that he had accomplished in his life were not enough. Something was missing. What was missing? Knowing Jesus. Not knowing about Jesus, but rather knowing Jesus. Anyway, as I started to say, Mark throws in something here that the other two accounts do not throw in. In Mark 10, verse 21, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. You know, I said earlier, he, he asked a sincere question. I think he did ask a sincere question. Because I don't think that reaction from Jesus would have been recorded if it was otherwise. If he was testing Jesus, if he was trying to trap Jesus, if this was a phony question, I don't think that would have been there. But Jesus looks at him and loves him. This is not a feel-good-about-him kind of love either. This is the agape love. Jesus loves him. But then, Jesus gives him the hard answer to the question that he asked. What do I still lack? Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, sell your goods, give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. Mark says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And Luke, when he heard this, when, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the the chapter that we talk about, the love chapter, Paul would record there, starting in verse 1, If I speak in the languages of men and angels but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging, clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains but I do not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but I do not love, I have gained nothing. So, Jesus tells this individual, there's one thing that you're lacking. Just one. Go sell all you have, give to the poor, come follow me. Sell, give, follow. There you go. That's it. That's the only thing that is lacking. Wow. If Jesus told you that there's just one thing that you lack, David... If there's just one thing that you lack, and you can be perfect, you can be mature, you can be complete. One thing. What do you think my responsibility would be? Do that one thing, right? Do that one thing. Now, if something popped into your head when I asked that question, you might want to write it down, because that's something that you probably need to concentrate on. You may need to work at, because that, may, that one thing that you thought of, that's probably one thing he already knows. Because he knows you, and he knows me, and we need to work on that. We need to get that squared away. What about this guy? He went away sorrowful. 
Um, Matthew says he was grieving. Mark says he was grieving. He is emotionally dejected. Why? Because he had great possessions. But unfortunately, he didn't possess them. They possessed him. Because he couldn't give them up. If there's something you can't give up, that's something you better give up. Because there's something that prevents you from being God's man or God's woman, then that's the one thing that Jesus is saying you need to get out of your life because it is preventing you from being who you need to be for me. Because of Jesus' reaction, Jesus loved him. You know it had to hurt when that individual turned and left. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. God must be first in the devotion in our hearts. If anything else has first place, we're in trouble. Now, he uses hyperbole here, talking about a literal camel going through a literal eye of a needle. And you and I would say, well, that's impossible. And that's exactly what his disciples said. It's like, well, who in the world can be saved then? Because their, their, entire, uh, their entire country, or you know, all of Jews, thought that riches were blessings from God. And so if you were a rich man, you were blessed by God because you were a good person. And Jesus is saying, that doesn't follow. That doesn't follow. Are riches a blessing? Well, they certainly could be, should be. But if the blessings have taken over your life, then they're no longer a blessing, they're a curse. And his disciples are like, well, who can be saved then? If the rich guys can't be saved, then who can be saved? And God, Jesus says, God can do anything. With man, it's impossible. If you're going to try to do it yourself, you can't do it. But with God, all things are possible. It's a matter of changing the heart. If the heart changes so that the possessions are no longer possessing you, but rather you are taking charge of the possessions, good deal. Now, was he told to give everything away? That's just one of my questions. I've always looked at this. He didn't even tell him to give it all away, did he? Everybody says he always told him to give it all away. It doesn't say that. It does say give, it does say sell all that you have, give to the poor, come follow me. See, this is just me, but Jesus' ministry was funded by people who came to him with money. Many of the rich women that were with him funded his ministry. This guy could have helped fund his ministry. But he wasn't willing to give it up. Now, whether, whether we've so interpreted it that he has to give it all away, I don't know. But certainly that would be proof that it's no longer controlling you. I just don't see it there. But that's, maybe that's my hang-up with money. I don't know. Or just the way it's written. But Jesus is telling us just like Jesus is telling this man, nothing can get between you and God. God must be number one.
one in your mind, God must be number one in your soul. Nothing gets between you and Him. Whatever it is that's in your life that's between you and Him, get it out. Because that is a stumbling block. That will prevent you from serving God. Successful kingdom living is based on total trust and reliance on God. Nothing that is based on my performance or my possessions will get me to heaven. Thank you very much for your attention today. You moms have a good Mother's Day. We'll see you again next week.